0: You're listening to English with Monty, the podcast about the English language. Talking about proverbs to help motivate English learners. Hello there and welcome to English with Monty. We're on to episode number 44 and I've got Ben back on the show. I don't know if people remember him. Of course they remember him. He did an amazing episode on exams and whether we should take an exam. Hi Ben, how are you doing? hi john i'm very well thank you thank you for having me back on you're very welcome it's good to have you back on i thought it was a good idea to follow on from what we did before on the proverbs
1: video on your youtube channel that was fun we spoke about some of our favorite proverbs and i got some good reactions from that some nice comments on my video it's nice to develop that a little bit further
0: definitely i got this wrong last time I know, in the episode but it's <laughs> to the point english with ben right That's it. Yeah. Brilliant. I got it right. This (laughs) is Ben's YouTube channel. And if you haven't listened to the other episode we did on exams, it was basically talking about whether you should take an exam or not for English. It was just linked in quite nicely with what you're doing on YouTube and Gideon and I both love what you do. And so we obviously wanted you back on here. I wanted you back on here and following on from the Proverbs and then also to plug your channel.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for your kind words. My YouTube channel, most of the videos are dedicated to Cambridge English exams, so the B2 first, C1 advanced, and C2 proficiency. But I also do a lot of grammar and vocabulary and a few pronunciation videos. A lot of it's related to Cambridge English exam preparation and how to pass those exams.
0: Great. I think it's always a good thing to talk about. And proverbs, I suppose, leading into this idea are probably quite important in a sense to exams Mm -hmm. these proverbs that we're going to talk about i guess they're connected to english learning or that was the idea how do you think proverbs work? Are they quite useful to have in general for exams or just general English? I guess we're talking about higher levels as well, aren't we, generally with proverbs?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, proverbs are a part of any language. I think, I imagine all languages have proverbs. So, of course, you can get by without using any proverbs in your English, in your own active English. You don't necessarily need to use them. But as you said, for the higher levels, it does demonstrate a good command and understanding of the language. But more than anything, it's to understand them because we use them a lot. Native English speakers use proverbs a lot, much like idioms or idiomatic expressions. We use them a lot and they can be quite difficult to understand because they're not literal. You can try and infer the meaning or guess the meaning from the words in the proverbs, but sometimes you just need to understand what they mean. So you may come across them in conversation, in films, or even podcasts, or even music. Their songs contain proverbs and idiomatic expressions. So yeah, I think it's good to have an understanding. You can't learn them all. You can't learn all the idioms. You can't learn all the phrasal verbs. But to have a good understanding of a few, it can really help you. As you mentioned, even in exams, especially in the speaking paper, I think sometimes to express exactly what you want to say. An idiom is perfect. Sometimes just a nice idiom can express in one sentence what could take you five sentences to express. So they are definitely useful.
0: I think that's one element that's worth thinking about, isn't it? The fact that you can express something in one sentence that ordinarily take a lot more, especially if you've got a word count. I mean, you've got to think about that, right? If you can fit that in to do that and to substitute those five extra sentences, then I think that always works, doesn't it?
1: Exactly. I mean, you have to be a little bit careful in exam writing tasks, for example, because it may not be appropriate. In an essay, for example, I wouldn't recommend you use idiomatic expressions or proverbs. Mm -hmm. In a review, for example, or an article or even a letter, a more informal letter, it may be appropriate and perfectly suitable. So it's all about understanding the register and the style that you need to use for the task you're doing. So it's just be careful.
0: Sure. It's whether it's appropriate or not, isn't it, really? Mm -hmm. exactly we're gonna try and get in maybe 10 but we'll see how we go do you want to kick off because you've chosen five and i've chosen five as well and then we're Mm -hmm. just gonna obviously go through them and say obviously what the proverb is and then talk a little bit about the meaning of it as well
1: Yeah, sure. I'll start with my favorite. We shouldn't do this. We should always end with the best ones because that keeps people (laughs) listening and watching to the end. But I'm going to start with my favorite one, which I think is really useful in general in life. I think what it expresses, but in particular for learning English or teaching English, really. So my first proverb is, if you give a man a fish, he will eat for a day. If you teach a man how to fish, he will eat for a lifetime. The idea of that one is sometimes it's better to teach somebody how to do something rather than just doing it for them. So giving a man a fish, okay, great. This man, maybe he's hungry. He doesn't have to go out and do the work of catching a fish because maybe he doesn't know how to fish, doesn't have the equipment. That's great. He has the fish he can eat for that day. He won't go hungry. But if you teach a man how to fish, he will be able to feed himself for a lifetime I make a lot of videos on my YouTube channel about vocabularies. I teach vocabulary and some on phrasal verbs. And for example, when I teach vocabulary, I feel that I'm a little bit guilty of giving students the fish rather than teaching them how to fish, how to learn vocabulary themselves. I have made videos, you know, how to learn vocabulary, how to learn phrasal verbs, how to build your vocabulary. And I think that's more important than just teaching students the vocabulary i think that we can do both as teachers but it's important that we teach students how to learn english in general but in particular how to learn vocabulary not just giving them the words because if i teach 10 phrasal verbs for example okay they've expanded their vocabulary by 10 phrasal verbs but the next time they come across a phrasal verb in a book that they've never seen before those 10 phrasal verbs i've taught them are not going to help with that particular phrasal verb So, yeah, it's about teaching people how to do something rather than giving them the answer or doing it for them.
0: That's a really important point, though, isn't it? For some reason, I've never really deeply thought about that. And now you've enlightened me potentially. But yeah, (laughs) I suppose it is very much make well, not making, but enabling the student to search for themselves, isn't it? And then use it themselves Mm -hmm. rather than just giving them the options and saying, okay, here you go, here are essential ideas. It's making them a bit more proactive, isn't it, in terms of the learning process?
1: Yeah, proactive and understanding that I think for me, phrasal verbs, for example, it's all about context. I think people see a phrasal verb and they think, oh, that's just impossible. It makes no sense. There's no logic to it. The verb and the particle just don't help me with the meaning. First of all, usually there is some logic. It's difficult to see the logic, but with a phrasal verb, there is some kind of logic. But it's really thinking about how it fits in the context. And it's about inferring the meaning from the context. If you just give the student the definition or the translation, that's fine, but As you said, they have to be proactive and go through the process of trying to work out what the meaning is. I say to my students, I don't expect you to give me a dictionary definition of the word we're looking at, but just more or less, can you infer what it means from the context, from the vocabulary around it, from the grammar, from the whole text or audio, whatever we're doing at the time. But it's about not just being passive, being a bit more proactive, as you said. So it's finding
0: the context, isn't it? And then trying to look for the clues that will help you determine what
1: that particular phrasal verb means. Exactly, that's it. Yeah, It's all about context.
0: Okay, my first one is strike while the iron is hot. Mm -hmm. I thought I'd go for that one because it's talking about the idea of taking advantage of a favourable situation, really, before it changes. I suppose in terms of maybe talking about exams, when we were talking about in the episode before... You were saying that sometimes it's good for somebody, after they've trained, to do the Cambridge exam to an upper intermediate level. I think it used to be called the first certificate, didn't it? But has it changed names now?
1: The first certificate is the B2 first
0: now. Okay. If you're doing the B2 first, and you've got on pretty well with that, and you've understood... The structure and way to do things then strike while the way iron is hot maybe think about going on to the advanced not so long after because Mm -hmm. it could work out that you'll find it not too difficult to make that step is that right
1: Yeah, very good advice. I think it depends on your personal situation because I don't always recommend that students spend too much time or too much of their lives preparing for exams. I think that is a very good example. If you've spent a few months preparing for the B2 first and you've got pretty decent results, then yeah, why not keep that momentum, strike while the iron's hot, and go for the C1 advanced because everything's recent. You know, you know the format of the exam, you know the strategies and the approach. Both exams are very similar, really. Obviously, the C1 advanced is a higher level, but It's a good idea if you're going to take the C1 advanced, if you think you're going to take it at some time in your life, then keep that momentum going. And maybe a few months after the B2 first, as you said, strike while the iron's hot and go for the C1 advanced.
0: Potentially good advice, I think, if you're feeling the momentum going in the right way. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So what was your second proverb? My second one, in some ways, it may seem quite similar to the first. I think there's an important difference. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Literally, the idea of this is you can take a horse or direct a horse to where there is water in case the horse is thirsty, but you can't force this horse to then drink the water. That's as far as you can go. You've done everything you can in your power to give the horse the chance of drinking. Again, from an English learning and teaching point of view, I think we as teachers can give students our time, our knowledge, our expertise and materials and equipment. We can facilitate the English learning process as much as possible. But at some point, the students have to drink the water. They have to do the work, really, and be proactive. I think this word proactive may come up a lot today, but it's, <laughs> it's very important that the students take the initiative and don't just expect the teachers to do all the work. As teachers, our job is to facilitate and make the conditions favorable and show, again, how to learn, but we can't do it for them. Each individual student has to make the effort, whether it's general English learning or preparing for an exam, the student has to do the work.
0: We also might have some extra skills that we're passing on to students in the sense that we're going to have fishermen, we're going to have people (laughs) who can drink water effectively, although we should, as human beings, be able to do that anyway, so maybe that's not (laughs) a big skill. We're kind of, as teachers, we're there leading the horse, a student, to the water, and yeah, they've got to drink themselves, haven't they, and make the most of things there.
1: All these proverbs come from another time, of course, when horses were more important in the world, Well, the fisherman thing was probably too. But I think all these proverbs are relevant for life in general, but we're looking to relate them to English learning in particular. And definitely this is something any students listening to this podcast need to think about. How proactive are you being in your English learning process?
0: That's a good question to ask yourself, isn't it? My next one is the grass is always greener on the other side. This one is kind of a life thing as well as being an English learning thing, isn't it? So the idea of the grass being greener on the other side is that other people seem to have a better, happier, more successful life. And that's regardless of the fact that actually your own life is probably going pretty well anyway. I guess to some extent it's focusing on the idea of focus on what you have and what you can do rather than thinking about others. Also because maybe things do seem better On the other side, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. I suppose the element in terms of English learning is try not to compare yourself too much with others, but also try not to think those people are significantly better. I mean, they might be, but also at the same time, you certainly talked about this with Gideon and we talked about this in our exam episode as well. It's comparing yourself to Mm. yourself, isn't it? It's like, where were you a few months ago, a year ago, and then where are you now? And making those two comparisons. And that should help
1: you not look at the other piece of grass, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's a good one. Again, and very relevant. It's funny because I've said that to my students before. I think you'll comment on one of my YouTube videos, somebody said, yeah, but I compare myself to people who have a better English level than I do because it inspires me mm-hmm. to continue trying. And that's great. That's fine if you can do that. But most people... I think it's human nature. We don't usually feel inspired. People usually feel a little bit demoralized and thinking, why don't I have that? And as you said, usually it's not true. I think we always seem to think, and I see this in my exam preparation classes, students think, the other students in the class have more vocabulary than I do. They understand the grammar better than I do. And almost (laughs) I could ask every student individually, and they would all say the same. And that can't be true. They can't all have more vocabulary or whatever. So it's the perception that the grass is greener on the other side, that the other students have a better English level. Often it's not true. Again, it's human nature that we feel that way. But also generally comparing ourselves to others, especially regarding our language level, is usually a bad road to go down. Usually it's it's not very motivational. Keep that yeah. in mind. Yeah, the grass is always greener.
0: Definitely. And also, I think some people will, will often compare themselves to native speakers. And I think that's probably a really tough thing to put yourself through, isn't it? If you genuinely compare yourself to a native speaker, because I think unless mm. you're learning a language before the age of maybe 13, you're still going to Struggle to get to the level of a native speaker. There's always going to be small things that are going to be missed out of your language. The idea of being able to get as good as a native, unless you have learned it before about the age of 13, it's just not really possible in terms of the way the brain forms. If anybody does do that, I would say it's not a great way of approaching things simply because, okay, you can get very good, but you're never going to be like a native speaker.
1: And that's the danger is that it can be demoralizing and demotivating because you're constantly striving, trying to reach this unachievable goal. I see so many YouTube videos, how to speak like a native speaker, speak like a native in three months. First of all, it's impossible. And second of all, it's creating unrealistic objectives or ideas, and it can have a negative effect on people's motivation and how they approach the English learning process. As you said before, concentrate on yourself to keep consistency, keep studying, keep improving little by little. And that's all that's important, I think.
0: And this probably leads quite well into your next
1: one, isn't it? Was it a jack of all trades? A jack of all trades is a master of none. So this one basically saying that somebody who is quite good at lots of things is generally not an expert or not very good at anything in particular. A jack of all trades, that's basically somebody who can do a lot of jobs. Just do a lot of jobs on a superficial level. They don't really understand anything. They're not an expert on anything. Again, I think that's true in life. That's becoming, in general, in careers and studies, I think we have to specialise more because there's so much competition. But regarding English learning, of course you need to develop all your skills and improve all the skills if it's reading, writing, speaking, listening, grammar, pronunciation, everything. But you can't do it all at the same time. I think when I chose this proverb I was probably thinking of exam preparation. These Cambridge English exams, for example, they can be very overwhelming. There's a lot to do. When you start the preparation, the mistake I've seen some students make is they try to do everything immediately like from the first day. They're trying to improve their reading, their speaking, listening, etc. You need to focus on one thing at a time I think so to really get a good understanding of the reading for example and then the writing you can't get good at everything at the same time it's about being focused I think that's the idea
0: yeah I think that's an important thing maybe in terms of working on the things that you're not as good at but also thinking okay there are certain elements that I know I'm better at. So you see those as your strengths, and then think about them as being the main things that you can take to the next level. And then other elements that are perhaps weak points. Okay, you can still work on them. Definitely, you need to work on them, but perhaps not think those are going to be a big problem for me. It's more a case of let's try and bring those up as much as possible. And then Mm. focus more on the elements that you are very good at, potentially, you'll see
1: the results come both ways, I guess, in that sense. In the end, you can improve everything, but it's just Mm -hmm. not trying to do everything at the same time. You can focus on your strengths first or your weaknesses first, but not all of it all at the same time. That's not how we're designed as humans. I think we need to focus. I'd noticed that with me and my life in general, and I'm terrible at this. You have a day where you have lots of things to do. In the end, you don't do anything right because you can't focus. Perhaps I'm stretching the meaning of this proverb a little bit far from the original meaning. But I think, as I said, focus on one thing at a time rather than doing everything at the same time.
0: Hello everyone, I'm Julia from Italy and my favourite episode is number 36, which is about British slang. By listening to this episode you will learn lots of words and expressions used in the UK. John and Gideon are really brilliant. So if you're curious, grab your cuppa and check it out. So my next one is Don't judge a book by its cover. And I suppose you can apply this to something or someone. I guess, obviously, for someone, it would be don't judge somebody on first impressions. It's about somebody's outward appearance, isn't it? Or something's outward appearance. I suppose in terms of English learning, if you look at something and you see something, and it could be a book you want to read or an exam you want to do or whatever it is, and you look at the image or at the book and it's like that seems a bit intimidating or it seems a bit boring or it could not be very up my street not really the kind of thing i'm looking for i think if you are learning english i always recommend particularly at higher levels go for books because it's really going to help with your vocabulary perhaps unconsciously a lot of the time, and don't literally look at a book and think, oh no, that looks too difficult, or it doesn't seem interesting. Perhaps just try and read it, get into it. I always think relate it to something maybe you've already read in your own language that you've enjoyed, maybe by a native English speaker who's written a book, and then it's been translated into your language. And then perhaps you can try that book that you've already read in English, and then you've got an idea of the plot, you've got an idea of the storyline. And then you're a bit more encouraged, even if the front of the cover doesn't look that good. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever choose books on the way they look? I do. I mean, honestly,
1: I do. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite yes. easy to do that. I think publishers, designers know that it's a very important part of the marketing. I think. I don't know if you ever remember going to a vinyl record shop and sort of flicking through the back in fashion now so yeah yeah that's true yeah i'm not on that bandwagon years ago i'm not going to say how many but many, many years ago i remember i did buy a few vinyl records and sometimes you just go in the shop you don't know who the artist is you just like the look of the cover because it's some really nice artwork on it maybe you'd never listen to the record but it looks good on your shelf Going back to what you were saying about reading, I really encourage my students to read. I think that's the best thing you can do. If you only have time to do one thing a day in English, I would recommend reading. One thing that many English teachers say, and it's right to a certain extent, we often say that you should read things and watch things that you find and that you enjoy, that you find interesting. But I think if you do that, then you're only going to be reinforcing the vocabulary and the styles you are familiar with. If you like Photography, then you're just going to read about photography, then you're just going to learn vocabulary about photography. If you need to talk about something else, I don't know, music, then your vocabulary is going to be very limited. So I think you do need to force yourself as a language learner, I believe, sometimes to read things that perhaps you wouldn't normally choose to read. But relating it to Don't Judge a Book by Its Cover, maybe you think it's going to be boring, but actually maybe it's not because you're introducing yourself to a topic which you find interesting in the end. I think we can find almost anything interesting. I think it's just this first reaction or first impressions that I don't like this topic. I'm not interested in this topic. It's like we take the decision to find it boring. But actually, if you start with a positive mindset, you may find something interesting in it. And then you're going to learn more vocabulary. And again, for exam preparation, that's very important. In the Cambridge exams, there are lots of different texts. And even in the listening part of the exam, you have different topics, which maybe you wouldn't normally choose to listen to, but you have to make the effort to find it interesting because it's much easier to absorb the information if you find it interesting. Again, I don't know if that's going too far away from the original meaning of the proverb, but I think it's how you perceive some things, I think, and we can choose to perceive them in a more positive way.
0: And I think I would have been one of those teachers who would have said, just focus on (laughs) enjoying yourself.
1: That's a great piece of
0: advice, actually, isn't it? Mm. Push yourself into a slightly new area that you think could be boring. As you say, you might surprise yourself. You might think, oh, cool. This is actually quite a good thing to read about. I often read an Italian magazine called Internazionale, and they take different snippets of news information, so different small articles from around the world. I suppose it's probably mainly Europe, I guess. They're from different countries with different journalistic backgrounds. And I find that really interesting because it gives you that snapshot. A lot of the things in there are not necessarily something that I'm directly interested in. And I'll, I'll invariably read all the stuff that I'm interested in first. Mm. And then I'll start coming to the things that I'm not so interested in. I think you're right. You do sometimes end up getting drawn in and you're, oh, okay, I now know these words. I recently read an article on chat GPT and mm. I didn't really know anything about it. I'd never read anything in English about it. And I found it a really difficult article <laughs> to read in Italian. It was a very long mm. article. I battled through it and I managed to learn quite a few words I didn't know in the English language through actually
1: reading this particular article. Actually, from both sides, it was quite enriching. They mentioned chat I'm thinking of a particular example, a student I have in my exam academy. It's Alessandra. I don't know if she's listening, but when she joined the community a few months ago, She wasn't interested in technology at all. In the Cambridge English exams, technology comes up a lot. We had to practice, sometimes read articles or do listenings on technology. Now she's an expert in technology. She knows all the vocabulary. I wouldn't say she now loves technology, but she's not such a technophobe as she was before, at least in English. Technology, I think it's very useful to know how to talk about technology in English or any language, but that's just one example. Your example is good. Perhaps you weren't particularly interested in chat GPT, but maybe by the end of the article, you could maintain a conversation with someone in Italian about chat GPT, I imagine. not sure if I could go that (laughs) far, but (laughs) I could try. Right, yeah. But you wouldn't be completely (laughs) lost, at least. I would hope not, no.
0: For Alessandra, for example, it can add another string to your bow to use another proverb, can't it? So Mm -hmm, it can give you an extra skill or an extra thing you didn't think you had, or Mm -hmm. now you do have it. And okay, you may not think it's amazing, but it's something that, you know, you thought before, this is just not for me. And then now, as she's obviously got familiar with the language, it is now something for her, right? Even though Mm -hmm. she may not be wanting to become a software developer, but at least (laughs) she has the conversational skills and probably a
1: reasonable opinion about these things now. That's an important thing you mentioned, yeah. It's not just about having the vocabulary, it's having a bit of knowledge. Again, I'm sorry to talk about the Cambridge English exams again, but I guess it's true of English speaking a second language in general. You don't necessarily need to have an expert knowledge to be able to talk about something. Have any kind of deep understanding of a topic. And they specifically say that in the Cambridge English exams. You're not expected to have any expertise in any topic. But it does help if you know a little bit, even in your own language, even in your native language, in your mother tongue. In the exams, you need to talk for a certain amount of time or write an essay or an article or something. So it does help if you have a bit more knowledge. Not necessarily essential, but it is a huge benefit, I think.
0: Can this segue into your next one?
1: Fortune favors the brave. I don't know if we can segue, but um, (laughs) perhaps you have to be brave to talk about things you don't or read things you're not interested in. Fortune favours the brave. That's quite self-explanatory, I guess. People who are more courageous, perhaps leave their comfort zone, again, regarding English learning, generally get luckier or see more benefits, I think. Really, what I was thinking about when I chose this proverb, it's about actively using your English. So speaking, so many people I know, so many students that study English a lot, they take exams, they get qualifications, but they never use their English because they're scared. Be brave, use your English, and you'll notice that that's when you'll really start improving by making mistakes, maybe even risking humiliation sometimes. It happens to me all the time when I speak Spanish, I say something that doesn't make sense or it's a little bit silly. I'm embarrassed or humiliated for a few seconds, but I get over it and I remember that I'll never make that mistake again putting yourself in the position to use the language you're learning and risk embarrassment, risk a little bit of humiliation. At the end of the day, you're not being humiliated because no one really cares as much as you do. Just go for it, really. Fortune favours the brave.
0: Do you feel brave now in Spanish?
1: It's funny. That's a good question because I think I was braver first year I lived in Spain. I don't know if this happened to you with Italian, but I don't think it's about being brave in that case. But I think for a, an English speaker, when you start learning another language, it's fun. Ben knows a few words of Spanish. That's great. Well done, Ben. But when you've been living in a country for a few months or years, suddenly it's not funny when you start making basic mistakes or your pronunciation not very good. It becomes quite serious. So paradoxically, you start getting a bit more hesitant and start worrying about your mistakes more because you shouldn't be making these mistakes when you've been living in a country for a few years. But I think I got to the point where I stopped after maybe 10 years living in Spain, where I thought, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to speak. I'm going to make mistakes because I'm not Spanish. And that's fine. I'll learn from those mistakes. So yes, to answer your question, I think I have got braver in recent years, in that I'm not obsessed about the mistakes I make. But then I'm not preparing for an exam in Spanish. If you're preparing for an exam, it's a slightly different matter. Yeah, what about sure. you?
0: I guess I've kind of got to the point where I don't really care too much. And I think that's always my mantra in a way, don't worry, mm-hmm. be happy when mm-hmm. it comes to language. And perhaps 10 or so years ago, when I was three or four years into Speaking Italian, I think I was probably more conscious of, oh, I have to speak, I have to improve, I have Mm -hmm. to do this, I have to do that. And I'm very casual about it now, which I'm much happier with in the sense that I'll be like, okay, if there are opportunities where I'm not speaking Italian, it doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. And if there are opportunities where I am speaking Italian, then great, that's a good opportunity to practice. Mm -hmm. And I just think about how I feel sometimes in terms of my mood. So yesterday I had plenty of opportunities to speak Italian. I didn't really that much because I wasn't really in the mood. I, obviously, I said stuff, but I wasn't really pushing myself. I wasn't really worried about it too much. Mm. So I think this idea as well, you have off days. There are days where you just don't really feel like it. That's okay, too. I guess that's part of being brave in a way, being brave enough to think, okay, look, I don't need to do this. I don't need to say certain things because I know I'm tired. So that could push you into making errors, I think, sometimes. So I think that can be a way of looking at it too.
1: I agree. Yeah, I think that's a good attitude. As long as you're not always avoiding situations, it depends on how many opportunities you do get to use the language you're learning. I agree with you completely. You shouldn't Beat yourself up if you haven't taken an opportunity. Just relax and take the next one or the one after that. You know, learning a language is serious, but it's not that serious. It has to be sustainable. I always say you don't want to have a negative relationship with English learning or with the English language. You want to get on well with the English language because you're going to be hopefully in this relationship for the rest of your life. It's important you get on well. It's
0: an important relationship to keep oiling, isn't it? Keep it sweet. Exactly, yeah. yeah. My next one is actions speak louder than words. Mm-hmm. So I guess this one is about what you do rather than not what you say. It's about procrastination in a way, isn't it? You may say you're going to take an exam or go to London to do a course or I don't know, work in the States, whatever it is. Great. If you say those things, make sure you put it into action. And I find on a day-to-day in your life, this can be quite a good philosophy to have. Because, okay, if you tell one person nothing really happens. But if you start mm. telling five or 10 people, you start to think, oh, okay, I've told five or 10 <laughs> people. So maybe I should yeah. actually put everything into action now because five or 10 people are
1: going to be like, so John,
0: what are you doing about this? <laughs> so both can probably work hand in hand as long mm. as you tell enough people, I would say.
1: Yeah. It's a bit of accountability, isn't it? Yeah, if you tell people, then you have to do it, which is good. Yeah. It's like New Year's resolutions. If you keep them to yourself, probably you're not going to do them, but you're not going to keep them. But if you tell a few people, you're more likely to do it. It's funny because that proverb, actions speak louder than words, reminds me, just yesterday, a student of mine asked about the expression, talk the talk and walk the walk. If you talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. And it's similar. If you're telling everybody you're going to take the English exam or telling everybody you're the best football player in your town, at some point you have to do it. It's not all about talking all the time. You have to put what you claim into action and prove it. Well, it's not about proving it, but just doing it, I guess. It's the Mm -hmm. same idea.
0: I think that's another nice expression as well. Your next one, I guess this is probably the last one, is it? It's the last one I've got. Yeah, yeah.
1: This one's a nice one. Two heads are better than one. And again, this is true for life in general. I think especially when you're studying, really this expression, two heads are better than one, really it means two brains are better than one. If you have a problem, it needs solving. It's quite obvious. Two heads are better than one. Two people thinking about it, you're going to get a better or quicker solution than if it's just one person. But the reason I chose this, I think when you're learning anything, but in particular the English language, and again, specifically exam preparation, if you can find a study buddy, someone to study with, it makes the whole process much more enjoyable. And there are lots of other benefits to it. I mean, we just mentioned accountability When you tell people about something, you're going to be held accountable. But if you need to prepare for the essay task in the C1 Advanced Cambridge exam, for example, you could be procrastinating and putting it off and putting it off. If you say to your friend, okay, next time we meet, we'll compare the essays we've written and we can mark each other's essays, then the probability that you will do it increases, I don't know how much, but a lot. (laughs) I can't give statistics. (laughs) Having a study buddy and going through the preparation process together or just maybe not exam preparation, but just studying English together, you can correct each other. If you both have doubts, you can find the answers to those doubts together. I'd recommend you find a study buddy for English in general, but especially if you're preparing for an exam.
0: Definitely. I think study buddies are great and Mm -hmm. that can be for anything really, can't it? Even if you're studying in your own language for a degree or something, I think that's useful for motivation just to have some bounce ideas off, just to really have a bit of company, I suppose, because I think studying can be a lonely old business sometimes, can't it?
1: Definitely. As you said, motivation is so important to keep going. Many people give up, or at least tempted to give up. If you're doing it with a friend or just anyone else, I mean, maybe you don't know anybody else who is preparing for the exam you're taking, but it's quite easy to find someone online there are facebook groups telegram groups discord channels you can find someone obviously you have to be careful when you're making friends with people online but you never have to meet them or you should never meet them in real person you can find a study buddy now motivation accountability and just some more pleasurable experience definitely the last one that i have i'm not sure if it's positive or negative it's probably a bit of
0: both so don't bite off more than you can chew mm-hmm. i guess this is thinking okay don't be too overconfident in a way isn't it if you're studying and you think oh i can do the c1 exam I'm, I'm amazing and it's like okay great but have you considered going slightly lower do you really need this sometimes you can take on too much when mm. you don't need to right your study buddy can potentially help with this if you have bitten off a bit more than you can choose and you've gone for a slightly higher level maybe they can help you share the load mean that you can probably target it a bit more effectively because it could be something that
1: you've gone for that's a bit too much for you. This is a great one. Actually, I made a video about this. One of the most common reasons that people fail their exams is cockiness or (laughs) overconfidence. Didn't mean to be nasty with that. There are a couple of reasons for that. First, people often bite off more than they can chew in that they decide to take an exam, which is not their level. Some people choose to take the C2 proficiency and then maybe not even C1 advanced. But also if you're overconfident or cocky, then generally you don't prepare as much as you should, you know, for the exams you need to prepare. It's good for motivation to aim a little bit higher, but you have to be realistic. If you bite off more than you can chew, in the end, it's going to be demotivating and stressful, I think, and frustrating.
0: Definitely. So I think that's probably one element that everybody should think about, and maybe it's a good one to finish on. Mm -hmm. Do you want to plug a little bit just at the end of the show? I mean, obviously, you spoke briefly at the beginning, so I don't know if you want to mention something extra.
1: Thank you. I will. (laughs) Apart from my YouTube channel, To The Point English with Ben, if anybody out there is planning on taking a Cambridge English exam, B2 first, C1 advanced or C2 proficiency, I have available now my complete preparation courses for those three exams they're online courses so they're video courses and you can find the link in my youtube videos
0: great they sound really good i mean i think it's always good to have a bit of coaching on that side of things and i've done that quite a few times too and it's good to do as a teacher isn't it and it's very rewarding once Mm. somebody passes and they get what they want which is the key really
1: Definitely. I've been preparing students for the Cambridge English exams for years. Last year, I decided to put all my experience and knowledge and all my tips on strategy and approach into one course for each level. Thanks for coming
0: on, Ben. I appreciate you helping out with those proverbs. And hopefully it's given the listeners a few extra insights and
1: things to think about. Thank you for having me again. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it again. So thanks, John.
0: Yeah, no worries. And hopefully, you know, we'll maybe do a video or something again soon. I wanted to make a quick shout out actually to Selma, who's been a great fan and she's left a testimonial on one of my podcast episodes. She's been very great and supportive. And I probably pronounced that wrong. I'm sorry. He's become my first Patreon member. Thank you for your support on that. And then also Tessa, who's a Dutch friend that I made when I was in London, who has done a lovely testimonial and is a bit of a fan too. Just wanted to make a shout out for those guys you are what makes my job worthwhile i'm sure that would be the same for you ben with some people that you know and it really helps boost our motivation doesn't it with what we're doing
1: definitely i live for the comments the lovely comments i get on my youtube videos and just in general people are so nice and positive
0: fantastic thanks a lot guys thanks again ben and you've been listening to english with monty if you would like to support my podcast then we now have a patreon page patreon is a platform to help fund projects like mine we offer exclusive episodes discounts on lessons and an uncut version there are other benefits too you can donate at patreon.com forward slash english with monty thanks for being a sponsor